Are you a marketing or advertising professional looking to stay ahead of the game? Well, we've got the perfect opportunity for you. Advertising Week New York is back for its 19th edition, and it's bigger and better than ever. Picture this, four jam-packed days of inspiring keynotes, thought-provoking panels, and networking with the industry's brightest minds. Advertising Week New York is where the world's top brands, agencies, and leaders come together to shape the future of marketing and advertising. But wait, here's the best part. You can secure your spot at Advertising Week New York during the exclusive Early Bird Summer Sale. Act fast and save 30% on all past types. That's right, you'll have access to every session, every workshop, and every unforgettable moment. Don't miss this chance to gain insights from the industry's trailblazers, connect with potential clients, and elevate your career. But remember, this sale ends on August 1st. Head over to advertisingweek.com slash New York today and buy your pass. No promo code needed. The 30% discount applies automatically. Advertising Week New York, the ultimate gathering for marketing and advertising professionals. Be part of the conversation, be part of the innovation, and be part of the future. Get your early bird sale pass now and join us at Advertising Week New York. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today hails from the north, our neighboring country of Canada, which we love dearly. And Monette and I met through our good mutual friend, Ambassador Ido Aroni, in Mexico at a gathering of the Genius 100, which is part of the Albert Einstein family in Hebrew University in particular out of Israel. And our guest today is Monette Malevsky. So welcome, Monette. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. And it was such a pleasure to meet you in February. I had a ball listening to you, your story, who you are. It was great. It was it was a great time. And, and thank you for that. Uh, I learned a lot more from everyone else, certainly than listening to me. But uh, a great gathering, which we'll talk about more. So, Monette, you are uh, an incredible woman. And right from the moment I laid eyes on you and I understood why Ido and Rami and the whole gang gravitate to you. You have a certain magnetic charisma and just people are drawn to you. You are incredibly philanthropic. And I know you were involved in all kinds of things. We'll talk about a lot of them. I know you just came back from the International Women's Forum in Helsinki. You're a leader not only in your city and your country, but globally. But I'd love to start, Monette, by talking about where that commitment and passion for philanthropy comes from? Did it come from your parents? Is it something that came from your late husband? Is it something that just comes from a flame within you? Um, I think it came from my parents, but a flame within me at the same time. Um, I really do believe in the Jewish or the Hebrew word tikulam, that we must repair the world. And we're not obligated to repair it all at once, but we're certainly obligated to try. And I think that comes from my background. So um, my family are Holocaust survivors. I'm a Holocaust survivor. So uh, I think that looking at how my parents lived their life with passion and optimism taught me uh, a lot about how your mind, as we were talking before, how your mind really works and how you allow it 
to um, like Victor Frankl, you know, he sees a, a flower in a piece of dirt and it's a beautiful thing. And so my parents' history is uh, one of courage uh, and resilience. They were both, my father is from Poland originally and moved to Belgium when he was 16 uh, on his own with his brother and his sister and her husband. And my mother was originally born in Wiesbaden, Germany, lost her father when she was two, moved to Belgium when she was four because her mother remarried. They met there. But in just to, to look at the entrepreneurship spirit and everything that I have, my father couldn't own a business in Belgium because he wasn't a citizen. So he had a front to own his business, basically. And in 42, they got married in my grandmother's house and the Gestapo came to the door looking for the yellow stars. And they were busy sewing the yellow stars in the kitchen. And they realized in 42, they started realizing that things were really bad. And all of the doors open for refugee immigration were closed. So my mother, my father, and my uncle, um, two weeks later, climbed the Alps, basically like the sound of music. They climbed the Alps and they got to the border of Switzerland, hoping Switzerland would let them in. Switzerland, as people know, were neutral during the war, but it was neutral because the Nazis kept it neutral because that's how they laundered money and that's where they put all the art. But once there were so many people at the border of Switzerland, they really had what I would call not concentration camps, but it wasn't DP camps. It was really hard labor camps. As sometimes you had in the United States and Canada for the Japanese, for the Chinese, it was hard labor. So my parents basically lived from 42 to the to May 45 in hard labor camps in Switzerland. That was how they lived their life. But while they were there, they had two children. They had my brother. And when my brother was born, there were lots of baby borns. My mother had a lot of milk and she had 50 children survive by the milk that she fed them. So that's why I say I come by it naturally. It was something that they did just like that. It wasn't something that they thought about, it just did. My father was very strong and believed in life. So he would go out and cut wood, but he would take off his shirt. He would put snow on his, he would get everybody to go. So it was always, how do we move towards the positive side? And I remember once seeing the movie, Life is Beautiful by Bellini. And that's when I understood, I could never understand why they had two children in this misery. But if you looked around them, the beauty was there. I mean, Switzerland is a beautiful country. You had the mountains, you had the sun. So most probably in their minds, they knew that life was going to continue and it was going to go on. And matter of fact, at one point, my father wanted me. I was, my brother was 18 months old. I was, it was October 44. My father wanted me born in Switz in Belgium so that he could own a company. Because if I was born there, he could own the company. And he got the Swiss to let them leave Switzerland to the border. And as they got to change the bottle of the the Battle of the Bulge was going on, one of the worst battles you can imagine, and that's go back. So I looked at my father, I said, my God, he was a real entrepreneur. He was ready to take the risks. He was ready to do everything to, to, to really to give something to his family. So we went back to Belgium. And in Belgium, we found my cousin who was 12 years old by then. His parents had been taken. He was hidden by, by um, some of the Catholic family that we knew very well. And we lived there till 49. And in 49, my father saw the communist threat. But the one thing that he did do is when we went back to Belgium, he put himself in a room for 30 days, like as, as if he was doing 
he lost 10 brothers and sisters. He lost his whole family. And 30 days, he just left us. But when he came out, he said, life is for the living. You have to live every day to the maximum because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And that's how they brought us up. They brought us up really with that courage of looking at life. My mantra, life is always that because of them, it's a dance between passion and love and fear because we all have fear in us. And we and when we talked before, fear is everywhere. I mean, everything that we see today that's going on, it's because they, they're using fear. And I believe that the leader of the dance has to be passion and love. It's that ability to go over that fear, even though we have it, and the ability to say, no, life is about positive stuff that we do. And so I think philanthropy became natural to me because it's something that I, I want to give back. We, um, 49, the communist threat was coming. And my father said, déjà vu, I'm not going through this. So he had a, actually an aunt living in New York. And my mother had an aunt in, living in uh, St. Louis. My father's family, by the way, Sandy Koufax is the third cousin. So the aunt, they were related and so on and so forth. But my father, having been born in Poland and not having been a citizen of Belgium because he wasn't yet a citizen, he couldn't get into the United States. You know, immigration policies in the United States were just as bad then as they are today, fortunately or unfortunately, you know. And so he, he sent my mother and myself and my brother on the Queen Mary to New York to St. Louis to try and get him in. And he could never get in no matter what we did. We, we tried to get lawyers, we tried. So he had a friend doing business in Canada in Toronto. And so he went to Toronto, we crossed the border. We were refugees with very little money, but he took a picture of the family in the winter, middle of winter, way up to um, Winnipeg in the cold, showed a picture of the family and said, uh, we'll be good citizens of Canada. And they put a stamp and let us in. So that's how we came to Canada. And today, too, Canada is much more open in terms of when we look at refugees and immigrants. We were in Toronto, but the French part of Canada was Montreal. And we only spoke French. We didn't speak any English. So we moved to Montreal. And that's how I got here. What a, what a great, great story. And uh, somewhere along the way, you also became a leader of people, not only a leader of women, but a leader of people. And I find there's a specialness of my friends in Canada, Montreal in particular, there is a, a real spirit that you have in that city. What is it about Montreal? Is there something in the water? Is there there's something special about Montreal? It's a great question, Matt, because people always say that. I had the privilege a couple of, um, about a month ago, I don't know if you know Amoroso Curry, who's a film producer and who's a rock star in Israel, right? I didn't know him, but we brought him to Montreal for an event that we were having with the Hebrew University. And I happened to have the night free, the night before free. And so Rami, who's the head of the CEO, um, the CEO of Hebrew, Friends of Hebrew University in Canada, he came with him the night before and he says, okay, what are we going to do? I says, oh, if he's a rock star and I don't know who he is, I'm going to take him to old Montreal and we're going to go to a great restaurant. He's going to see the people. And within a half hour, he said, there's a vibe here, Manette. And I said, you've just come. He says, no, I've been in New York. I've been in Toronto. I've been, he says, there's a vibe here. What's going on here? And he's a creative. I said, I believe for me, it's the connectivity between the French and the English, that there's a connectivity of those two cultures that come together here 
and really make it the creative juices. We have a lot. I mean, you you know the people that we have here, you know, um, Michel Tremblay, I mean, the head of the Metropolitan uh, Opera in uh, in, in, in New York is uh, Yannick Seguin, a Montrealer, you know, uh, and a fantastic guy. Uh, he has an orchestra here as well that I'm very engaged with and involved in. So I just do think it's the combination of those two. And the thirst for life, I think they really have it. Again, I think Israel has a lot of it because of the risks. Quebec, don't forget, it was very French in an English milieu. They had to fight for themselves. And I think that fighting helped bring out the the ability to take those risks and to go forward and to be, they weren't in the business world because the business world ha happened to be the English world. So they ended up either in the doctors or they ended up as professionals or in the creative world. So the arts are very important. Your dance, we have great dance companies. And I think that's what brings it forward. And then you feel it on the street. Uh, I remember having, we have a, a quite a big, good black community here, but from everywhere. They're from Africa. They're from the Caribbean. They're from everywhere. And I had a friend who came to honor another friend in the black community here. And he was from New Toronto, originally from the Caribbean. And he said, what's it here? You're all together. So all the black community, no matter where they come from, it's one big group of people that are really the cream of the cream that came together and, are, and it, they're not segregated. It's not one group here, one group there, they're together. And I think that's what makes, especially Montreal, I can't talk about the rest of the province, that's all, I'm not getting into politics, but Montreal has that ability to really be authentic and, and real. And I think that's what you feel. Yeah, it's really palpable. Years ago, we had uh, my old friend, Danielle Lamar, who was the longtime CEO of Cirque du Soleil. And he spoke uh, at Advertising Week and we did a, a performance of Cirque at the old Roseland, which is gone now for our rap party. This must have been 15 years ago. And he invited me up to Montreal to go to the Cirque campus, which was incredible. And uh, I loved the visit. And what I remember the most, Monette, was as a kid growing up, my family's from Brooklyn, I go up in Queens. And as a kid for about 10 years on and off, I was a bagel baker. And I always heard the legend of the Montreal bagel. And I was, I was very skeptical, I will tell you. And uh, oh my God, they are the best. And it's heresy as a New Yorker for me to say this out loud, but they really are the best. They are, they are. There was, there was a con, there was, I think four or five years ago, there was a competition of the best bagel. And certainly Montreal bagels came out as the best. And you see the lineups. I mean, there's three or four of them where, you know, they, they use the old ovens and you line up and you get fresh, hot bagels. You know, when I was a kid, we used to go and get bagels. And then we used to go to the pool hall and get the best hot dogs. I mean, we just went down the streets and got whatever we had to. And it was just a lot of fun. Well, we'll leave poutine out. That I think is... Uh, yes, poutine I mean, is, yeah. is definitely... But poutine right now is interesting because Paris has shops with poutine. So poutine became... Uh, my, my grandchildren love poutine, you know. Oh, my For people goodness. who don't know what poutine is, it's French fries with, you know, any kind of sauce you want to put on top of it, cheese. Today they have poutine with seafood. Oh I mean, they poutine everything, you know. Not, not, not on the light menu. So you built a huge business, uh, uh, M. Bacall, one of the hugest players and most influential players in the insurance business. And over the last 25 years or so, since your husband passed, you have really, really grown that business. 
Uh, talk about that journey for you, personal, but you did not just rest on what had been built. You took it to another level and you did it sort of flying the plane solo in many ways. <laughs> so what I did is I made it into a family business. Uh, at the end of the day, we really are an entrepreneurial family business. When my husband was quite ill, um, he was very, he was very clever. He was one of the best, most clever. I think he lived his death. He he managed with everybody to make sure that everybody knew what was happening. Once he tried everything and he couldn't do anything, he stopped anything that was chemo. And he just said, I'm going to live. And he lived two years when they gave him six months. So he was one of those people. But my daughter uh, was not sure what she wanted to do at that time. And he said to her, I suggest you go and work with your mom because your mom's going to be alone, basically. And she's going to need someone. If you don't like the business, then you could leave. And I mean, we're 25 years later and she is my succession plan. And then I brought my brother in. So we did build what I call a family business. And it's a great business to be in because I'm in the insurance business, which is really helping people in case something happens to them. But I always say, that's how I'm paid. That's not what I do because we really deal with families. So I'm, I'm also a family consultant. I have what's called an FEA, which is family advisory Um that's what I, family entrepreneurs advisor. And I went back to school and the five years ago, I went and I got that. It's like going back to school and getting your executive MBA. And the idea is that I work with a lot of families because the key to families is dealing with legacies, but not financial legacies only. Intellectual legacy, your social legacy, you know, your, your, your spiritual legacy, your capital legacy, those are the things we deal with. And that's what I love to do because we really work with the next gen or the rising gen and making sure, and it doesn't have to be the family business. Like you said, bagel business, it doesn't have to be the family. It has to be family entrepreneurs. They end up changing from one company, maybe to another one, but they're entrepreneurs. And so therefore, what's the family all about? What's the ownership all about? What's the business is all about? And philanthropy has become a big part of family businesses. They are. If you look at family offices, you have philanthropy. Those who have done well and not those who haven't done well. I think today we talk about stakeholders rather than shareholders and everything we do. And they're they're the front line of changing of social justice, of whatever. So I love it because that talks to me as well but I talk to them from my experience. So I always call myself because I'm already of a generation that's older, but very young in spirit. So I always say that uh, in front of my younger clients, they like, are you going to be there later, Manette? When, when, you know, uh, and I always say, you're so lucky to have me because I have active wisdom with grace and elegance and you need that at the table as well. So that's what I do. And they love it because I, and I have my daughter, of course, in succession. So it works because I think at the table, you need all kinds of lenses and young people need older people's lenses as well as young people's lenses. So I've gotten very involved in the Family Enterprise Canada, all across Canada. Uh, gotten involved across the world, actually, in family business networks. We have a, a, a summit of the minds every year where we work with families and we look at what's going on, what the changes are. So I've Edo's come to some of these things. I've brought my friends in to meet with the people from across Canada. So it's been a lot of fun. And I deal basically with the high altruistic net worth because that's who really, and even small businesses, but that's who we deal with. We start from small and we get bigger with them. So that's what we do. Incredible story. So going back and, and I'm just reflecting on the story you told of, you know, your own family's experience and ultimately landing in in 
ending up in Montreal, uh, you've been a champion for the cause of immigrants, have been honored for it. Is that your way, Monette, of paying it forward? Yeah, I think paying it forward is that I've got lucky that my parents came to a wonderful country, to a wonderful place. And I think it's in the DNA of Canadians. You know, many Canadians tell me, because we look so much like Americans, we have the same things as Americans, we like the same food, we have the same clothes. What's the difference between Americans and Canadians? And I always go back to the Constitution. And I always say the American Constitution is based on the First Amendment, individual rights, and the second one, right to bear arms. The Canadian Constitution is based on the collective good. So we really believe in the collective good, and it's part of our culture, it's part of our DNA, it's part of how we're brought up. So I think that's part of what we do. And also as an immigrant here, I wanted to show that immigrants can be successful. So part of it is role modeling that you can be. And I made it a purpose of mine to become part of the Francophone community. Many immigrants who come here who, who were Jewish or from another background didn't speak French. They ended up in the English system because it was easier because North America. But I went the reverse. I went, no, I want to be part the bigger part of Quebec is French. I want to be part of the French community. And I just pushed myself hard to become part of that community. So at one point in my life, I, I've had lots of, as you say, philanthropy, but I was president of a museum called Pointe Carrière. And that's our museum of, of archaeology. That's the museum of really the beginning of Montreal. I was president of the ballet school. Uh, so I, I was I was the vice president of the Chamber of Commerce, Jean de Commerce, which was French. I sat on an angel board of only French people. I sat on an investment board, which was part of the Quebec government. So I always represented women, diversity, uh, French and English, always together, you know, on a board. And I felt really good about it because um, I got there because of who I was and what I know. And of course, you can't get to those boards unless you're, you've got the qualifications. But I was most probably a big fish in a small pound at that time. They were looking for diversity, and that's what I was. And I managed to make sure that I was part of it. So that's how I, I get to be so involved and so engaged in so many things, because I believe in it. And it's a model for others to come forward to. It absolutely is. Can we talk about uh, the Canadian Friends of the Hebrew University? I know you were just at a landmark event in Israel, which I want to touch on, but let's go back. You've been involved with them for a long time with uh, Rami, and I'd love to talk about you know your sort of journey uh, with the Canadian Friends of the Hebrew University. So that's an interesting journey because I didn't, everyone says to me, you went to the EBU because a lot of people who were involved were alumni. They went there for six months a year. They studied there, very engaged with Israel. It wasn't who I was. I was very involved in many things, but the, at one point, the chairman of the board of the school system that I, because at another career, I was head of a school system, the Jewish day school system in Montreal, and that's all other career. He, when I started going into the insurance world, asked me to be on the board. I said, why do I want to be on a board? He says, because it's good for you. But anyways, he got me because of what you just talked about, intercultural. He said to me, Manette, we're going to be honoring Tony Comper. And Tony Comper at the, at the time was the CEO of the Bank of Montreal. And he and his wife had done a program called FAST, which was really against anti-Semitism. They were putting books into schools. They were teaching programs in schools about anti We could beat anti-Semitism together. He says, we're going to be honoring him. So Manette, we'd like you to chair that event. 
Well, he got to my heart because he knows that's exactly where I was going to be. It wasn't about Tony. It wasn't about the Hebrew. It was more about what it was, the purpose of what they were doing. And I got engaged very much. And I think what I found in the Hebrew University is, yes, I, I love women and I want to promote women. But I also believe in the intercultural relationship of people. And so the Hebrew University sitting in capital of Israel and in Jerusalem, it represents all of diversity in Israel. 20% of the, of the students are Arab Israelis. We have Haredim, the very religious. We even have East Jerusalem Palestinians in the school. We have Ethiopians. So the, the university is a, is, a, is a mosaic of everything and it leaves nobody behind. So that got to me because I said, I love Israel. I'm not talking about politics now and what what land is, but that Israel as a country, I really believe that it, it belongs and we have to have that country. And therefore um, I fell in love. But what I didn't know was that the founder, one of the four founders of Hebrew University is Albert Einstein. And that was in 1918. And he founded, it was Weitzman who asked him if he would come and help form it. And one of the reasons that he did it is when he found his theory of relativity in 1915, he was going around to talk about his theory of relativity and he was Jewish, but he didn't really, wasn't religious. Nobody would know it unless you knew he was Jewish. And yet, as he went around talking about his theory, a lot of it was poo-pooed and part of it was because he was Jewish. They were anti-Semitic and he was in shock about that. So one of his decisions was we need an institution that's not political. We need an institution of higher learning that really teaches pure science. And so he decided that he, when he was asked, he would help found the university. So the first cornerstone of the university was formed in 1918. He went all through the United States and raised the money and the doors opened in 1925. So I always say that the daughter was born before the mother because the country didn't exist till later. And so we were lucky to have him. Uh, and in 1955, when he passed away, he left his entire legacy, his intellectual property, to the university. So we have about 80 to 85,000 documents that belong to Albert Einstein. So we're the repository. And typical of universities, they're titanics, basically. It was sitting in a building on a campus, being used, you know, putting it to digital use, but nobody was really making it. Ido, who you talked about, Ido in 2007, because he was in the diplomatic corps and he was also a branding and you would appreciate that uh, person international. He really believed that Einstein would be a great brand for Israel and that we should use Einstein because Einstein is a brand and you're in the field, but like everybody knows Einstein and not just for his science, but for the humanitarian he is. He's a, he was a humanitarian and that too, he inspired many, many people. So Ida went around trying to find out somebody who would listen to him and unfortunately, at that time, Israel didn't, the university didn't, even the American friends of the Hebrew University didn't. But he came, he was by chance stationed for three weeks, I think, or three months here in, in Toronto to replace another uh, consul general who had left. And he knew Rami. He met with Rami. He talk, I was chair at the time. He talked to Rami. And we said, we'll take it on. So here in Canada, we decided that that was a force that had to be taken on and that we should go forward with it. So it took us a long time. In 2017, actually, Rami um, Ito introduced Rami to um, Jose Magrabi. And they discussed the idea of a museum. And Jose already put money down right away. 
you put like $5 million down and it says, I'm for it. And then it, because the, the universities are titanics, it took them a long time to eventually agree that maybe we Canadians had something, you know, that they didn't have to go elsewhere. And so they gave us the opportunity and uh, we moved that to now $20 million US that uh, the university, certainly Asher Cohen, who's the president of the university, worked with Rami, worked with Ido, but he really closed that deal. But Ido brought it forward. And I made sure that our board here was behind it because we had to put a lot of money up front to do a lot of things to get behind it. And we nobody was ever sure if it was going to happen or not. But we really believed, Rummy and I really believed it would happen. And uh, on Tuesday, it was a delight to go and be in Israel at the Board of Governors and to do the first dome of the museum that's going to be. And it was Jose McGrubby that insisted that it's uh, Daniel Lipskin, who he knows very well. And as you know, uh, did the 9-11, uh, re, you know, refurbishing of 9-11 um, down at the uh, yeah. World yeah. Trade Center. The, the memorial. Exactly. And he also did the um, Holocaust Museum in Berlin. And so he's a well-known person. And uh, he was there, obviously. And McGrubby, being an older, older gentleman, really wants this done quickly. So we're hoping that the whole thing will open by the end of 2024, the beginning of 25. Incredible story and uh, Canadian leadership on a global scale here uh, must have been incredibly emotional for you and Rami and Ido and Jose and, and everyone. It was so emotional. And um, I think it's like my name's not going to be there because I certainly don't give the money. But I know that I'm a catalyst behind it. And I know that I was one, you know, it takes a village to make something happen. And I know that I was one of the pillars that helped this happen. And it's a legacy for my family that will always be there. And for Rami as well, and Ido for sure. Uh, Ido's been, you've been reading the stories, I'm sure everywhere, Forbes and here and there, Ido's been busy and good for him to do that. But uh, I know that he says that he couldn't have done it without us because we brought it forward and we, we believed in what he was doing. We really did. We took it on and we said, you know what? This is great. Let's go. And Rami was a visionary and I just kind of, you know, went along with it, but not really. What Rummy says and what Ido says about me is that, um, you know, I, I once read a study about philanthropists and you're talking about philanthropists and the study came out of the UK of the Institute of Philanthropy and they did a survey of 500 philanthropists or entrepreneurs that give a million dollars or more. And what they discovered is a philanthropist has two things. They're either interested in a domain, very much like their business, they're interested in a domain and they will work on that domain, whether it be addiction, whether it will be um, computerized um, medicine, they'll work at it. But the other part will work on strategies and um, process to bring the thing forward. And I'm one of those people that believe, so I disrupted the organization with Rami in the last three years. We moved the organization to a whole other level and I'm now being asked by the friends in, in England, by the friends elsewhere, can I help them? Because we've really disrupted everything. We brought in young people, we brought in the next generation. We reimagined what we were, and we really believe that the investment of what we're doing is the impact of knowledge for the betterment of the world. So you recognize me there. I mean, that's what I believe, you know, and that's what we're doing. And so that's where we've gone. And I'm very excited. I'm, I'm stepping down in September, but I wouldn't step down until I had another great person. And now we, we brought somebody in, Michael Kraft, who's a serial entrepreneur. He's what they need next. I cleaned house. 
I did everything we had to put everything in order and now for him to move forward. So I'm really excited about that as well. Oh, I love that. And then how you do it without ego, you know, m many years ago, uh, we were trying to bring a big international sporting event to New York. And the one facility we didn't have was an Olympic pool. There was no Olympic caliber pool or diving tank in New York for the four Olympic aquatic sports. And we got one built and uh, it's still there today. And like you, my name isn't on the wall either, but I know I did it. And you know what you've done and that's good enough. Let's talk about what brought us together, which is the Genius 100 community. I want to talk about uh, the IMAX film and Einstein's The Fantastic Journey, which I love, and, and Daniel and Taryn and that team. But let's talk about the Genius 100 and how you got involved there. And uh, it was such a wonderful experience to be with you all in Mexico in February. I'm looking forward to next year. Uh, and uh, let, let's talk about the Genius 100. So, so that came out of a lot of the work that we were doing about Einstein, because one of the things we said is, okay, is theory, how do we move forward with the museum? How do we move forward with different things? And we said, well, it's the hundredth anniversary of his theory of relativity. Why don't we have a big party? You know, and why don't we celebrate it? But we didn't know how we were going to celebrate it. So we said it has to be something different. And we got in touch with Ron Arad. I don't know if you know Ron Arad, but Ron Arad is a great artist, architect out of England. I call them when a, a lot of these Israelis that live all over the world, I call them the dolphins, the Israeli dolphins, because they're they're incredible people. You look at, uh, you know, you look at um, what's his name? Suki Levy. You look at Ron. You, you know, these are great guys and they're they're engaged and involved with us. So we phoned Ron and we said, so what do we do in order to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Einstein? And Ron turned around and said, oh, that's a hard one. That one I have to think out of the box as if he never does. He always does. But he thought he came back and he says, I'm going to create the first 3D book ever created in the bust of Einstein. And you're going to go out and get 100 visionaries that are going to write 250 word essays as to how they see the future. This was 2016. So that's what we did. And in 2017, the book was designed. It's it's made out of plastic. It's a beautiful book. Uh, and it's like you've seen it. So you mm -hmm. see how amazing it is. And we went and had a jury to get um, people in 10 different disciplines. We didn't only do science. We did science. We did math. We did humanities. We did literature. We have politicians. And so we got 100 visionaries. And then we decided we should create a big party to invite them. So on a weekend in a September 2017, I was the chair of that event. That's what I did. We had this huge event in Montreal where 26 of the visionaries came and we had summits. We had summits for children, for high school students. We had Dan Golden, who ran NASA for 10 years as one of the people who were here. We had um, Chipra, uh, what's his name? Um, the mind, um, Dobra. Deepak yeah. Chopra. Exactly. Uh, we had so many different people here, 20, 26 of them. And what I did, what we discovered, because they all came and they spoke, what we discovered was amazing. They had no ego either, no ego and full of humility, each and every one of them. But they loved being together. They loved the fact, I think they played off of each other to make it even better. And that's what we we looked at that. We said, this is not the end. 
this is most probably the beginning because to us, it was a culmination. We, we had our book, we were raising money. We had this huge event in Montreal. It was a weekend event with people from all over the world. And we realized that this was something really incredible that was happening. And from there, we decided we should form some kind of organization. And we worked at it for a year or two. And it, the outcome is Genius 100, which stands alone, but it was part of the Canadian Friends, but it's not our real mandate. Our mandate is really to bring money to EBU. This is a very different mandate. So we basically created this organization that we're very heavily engaged in and involved in. And the idea is not to curate new things, but to work with the people who are part of it and create an ecosystem of people like with brilliant minds like yourself, like Ego, to be a part of it and then help them create what they need to move forward on. So we do that with many, many of them. We do three or four projects a year where we're helping curate it. And you've met some of the people there when we were there. And one of the projects that came out was Einstein, the IMAX, Einstein's Incredible Universe. And that really came out again from, I don't know if you saw the IMAX Jerusalem. I, so I, the, I, not, I know of it from you and Rami, but I've not. Right, seen so the IMAX filled Jerusalem, they had a hard time really bringing cameras. Could you imagine they wanted cameras on the top of Jerusalem, hovering around and, and filming and, with security, you could imagine that that was almost an impossible thing. So because we have the connectivity in Jerusalem, because the Hebrew University sits there, we were able to get that going and we also were able to raise funds to them. But Rami said to them, well, the next movie you have to do is Einstein. I mean, he, he said it because he thought, and you know what? They said, you're right. And so they basically decided that they would create this next movie, which is called Einstein's Incredible Universe. And the idea was because IMAX movies are for, for, for families and children, you can't really look at all the scientific component of, of Einstein, but you can look at the inspiration because Einstein's key was imagination is more important than knowledge. And how can you be creative and use your creativity and your imagination? And so therefore the film is basically based on the story of Einstein as he inspired people and he inspired specifically two women. One is Andrea Gatz, who people might know or not know. She won the Nobel Prize. She's um, um, in, in 2019 for having really confirmed the black hole. And she's really well-known astrophysicist out of California. And for her, it was Apollo 11 that got her going, okay? And the other one is uh, Nori Navara. She's from Pakistan. And she, it was Meteors when she was seven, again from Einstein. And so she now is the head, the dean of science at MIT. And she discovered the black waves. So, these, so it's inspired. These are the story of these two women and looking at young children, especially girls, to be inspired by STEM. So that's the movie. And it's pretty far along. Yes, because they were able at this. Uh, uh, it, there was um, there was an eclipse. Uh, so um, in 2017, there was a solar eclipse, and they they had 27 cameras going over that solar eclipse. So all of that is footage that they're using. And uh, Andrea was there. Her family was there. So they have all of that already there. We've seen pieces of it because we used it in our event in 2017. So that's a good chunk. And the rest of the movie, the rest of the movie, they're going to start in the fall. They did get three million dollars U.S. from the um, Science Foundation in the United States because they really believe that this is going to be a great educational film. 
I know that most of the science centers worldwide said it would be number one film that they would show if the film was made. So they're going to get there. And now we're just looking to find somebody to, it's, it's about an $8 million film. So we're looking for $4 million that we need to finalize it, which we, we're sure we'll find. Yeah, no, uh, it's such a great opportunity, especially for a big global brand that uh, cares about imagination, inspiration, female empowerment. There are so, ma so many resonant themes. And also a big philanthropist who wants to see their name on the screen, you know, and, and just like we had with the museum, we got one philanthropist that decided to put the whole museum out there, got money from the government as well. But we can have that as well. So it's either a global brand or a philanthropist who really believes that they think that this is important for life. And we have people like that out there. So right. that's what we're looking for. Fantastic. Well, Monette, I can't thank you enough for doing this. To hear your story and and to dive in, uh, I feel uh, very much out of place as a member of the Genius 100 community. Oh, you're anything but out of place, Matt. Anything. <laughs> oh, but it's uh, humbling and flattering to be part of that community. It's always good to be in your company in any way, shape, or form. And I uh, can't wait to see you again, and we'll continue our journey together. For sure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.